Jesus, a forerunner for us, part one. Increment 174 in Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Seeing Jesus, we are oscillating between joy and hope. Hope and joy. That's the oscillation in our study now. In Hebrews 6.18 and 19, hope is both set before us and an anchor for the soul. We have some mixed metaphors. In fact, we have a triple metaphor here. First, hope is a visible hope that is, quote, laid out conspicuously before us like a race course or the map of that course. That map of the hope set out before us corresponds to the breadth and width of the love of Christ. Second, hope is an invisible anchor for the soul, corresponding to the depth of the love of Christ. It keeps us from drifting off course. It keeps us from joining the already teeming masses of drifters in this world without hope, without God in this cosmos, in this evil evil age. It keeps us from drifting off course and from forgetting the great salvation that's now embodied in our great archpriest. Thirdly, our hope enters into the heavenly holy of holies. And that corresponds to the height of the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Hope has entered the heavenly holy of holies. Elvis may have left the building, but Elpis has entered the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus has entered the heavenly holy of holies as a forerunner. And that's the word prodromos. We'll see that maybe in part two. Prodromos, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-O-S. Jesus is a lot of things. He wears a lot of hats. He has a lot of titles. In fact, he wears a lot of crowns. And this is one of them. Prodromos, it's a rare word in the New Testament. It has military connotations, as we're going to see. And this will be all the more interesting to our stoic marine, Emery. Hope has entered the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus has entered the heavenly holy of holies as a forerunner for us. Therefore, Jesus is our hope. Hebrews 6.20 reads specifically, where a forerunner has already, I put in brackets because that's the sense, where a forerunner has already entered for us. Those of you who remember our study in Romans, remember the doctrine of divine promeity. There is no God but God for us. The God is God for his creation, for humanity, for each of us. A forerunner has already entered for us. Therefore, Jesus for us as a forerunner is a continuation of the doctrine of divine promeity. He works all things together for the good for us who are the lovers of God and who are called according to his purpose. He gave him over as a sacrifice for our sins for us 
for us all, says Romans 8.32. That'll be coming into focus again a little bit more down the road. So again, Hebrews 6.20, where a forerunner has already entered for us. And then standing alone and apart, even in the verse itself, we have the name Jesus. Having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not just called a priest there as he's called in Psalm 110.4. He's called an archpriest. And he's also called an archpriest in Hebrews 5.10. So between 5.10 of Hebrews and through 6.20, we have a section in this great homily. And it's all to introduce <clears throat> a section which will elucidate, elaborate, explicate, explain what Jesus is, what he's doing, who he is, and all the implications and all the inferences of his great archpriesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which will begin in 7.1. Now, note that Jesus has <clears throat> already become an archpriest by the time he entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Otherwise, he would not have had the authority and the right to do so. And this recollects Hebrews 2.17 to 3.1 and Hebrews 4.14 4, and mostly 5.6 and 5.10, all of which refer to Jesus' priesthood. And again, in 5.10, where it refers to Jesus, quote, having become an archpriest forever like Melchizedek, by God's declaration. This declaration is a formal acclamation. So is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is a formal royal acclamation of Jesus, which the father made to his son, and therefore a declaration that he is a king. The formal application acclamation of Jesus as you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek that is an acclamation and a proclamation of Jesus as a priest our priest is our king our great archpriest is our great king he is a royal priest he is a priestly king and there are many implications and inferences that we can draw and will draw from that this declaration, a formal acclamation, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, was preceded and confirmed by a divine oath, just like the promise to Abraham was backed up by a divine oath. And this passage takes us all the way back to the exhortation in Hebrews 4.14, where the pastor exhorts, quote, therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast the confession. Let's hold on tight to that confession of Jesus, the Son of God. You'll notice in Hebrews 4.14 and 6.20, there's a progress. He passes through the heavens in 4.14. He enters into the region beyond the second veil in 6.20. So we see Jesus in a progress, in a movement as priest. The exhortation in Hebrews 4.14b deploys the same verb as that in Hebrews 6.18. And that 
speaks of seizing, krateo, grasping and holding on tight, krateo, to the hope that is set before us. Hard to get away from hope, isn't it? Abandon all hopelessness, you who enter here. God wants us to have, and I'll repeat this, and I'm going to repeat it so that you don't forget it, hopefully, that none of us forgets it. God wants us to have the full scope of hope. That's why my major in these past few years has been the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, reconciling, rectifying, and restorative impact of the cross of Christ, both of which speak in different ways about the full scope of our hope. Absolute confidence in the full range of the saving work of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't have to suggest to you that this is not the scope of hope that's held by many churches today, by many pastors, by many cardinals and monsignors and bishops, evangelists and shepherds and teachers and Christians. And certainly it isn't held by me yet as it ought to be but I press on, and, I, and we all do. God wants us to have the full scope of hope so that it produces in us an anchor of absolute confidence in the full range of the saving work of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God wants our hope to overflow, and that's an interesting word. It's perisuin, P-E-R-I-S-S, E. U-E-I-N, that's one of the inflections of the word, parisuin, means to overflow. And that word is used in Romans 15, 13, may God the Holy Spirit cause hope to overflow in you. God wants our hope to overflow, Romans 15, 13, that's why he literally overflowingly, and then we have a similar word, the same word, only different inflection of the word, P-E-I-N. R-I-S-S-O-T-E-R-A-N. So God literally overflowingly in Hebrews 6.17. So we have a connection between Hebrews 6.17 and Romans 6.13. Romans 15.13 rather. Again, Romans 15.13, Hebrews 6.17. That's what it would appear in a cross-reference in a Bible that I would translate. So that's why God literally overflowingly demonstrated the immutability of his promise of an innumerable progeny to Abraham. The innumerable progeny to Abraham, of course, infers the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And I'm trying to allow you all the art of inference, how to follow inferences, and how to present lower blade data to your inferences whether to strengthen them or disprove them. But again, the innumerable progeny to Abraham promised and backed with an oath itself is an inference of a universal salvation. And so once again, God literally overflowingly demonstrated the immutability of his promise of an innumerable progeny to Abraham by mediating himself by himself mediating to guarantee it 
that promise with an oath. Have you seized upon this hope? That's my question. I know the answer from many of the people who are listening to this message is yes, we have. Yes, I have. I have seized upon this hope. If you have, then you've installed a stabilizer in your soul. You may know nothing about mechanics. You may know nothing about automotive mechanics, but you have installed a stabilizer in your soul. I'm going to do this again. Don't be weary when I keep repeating the translation of the passages we're in because this is going to help these passages become riveted into your subconscious, into your stream of consciousness for future memory. And the future memory of these things is going to be extremely important when you are in the fog of war, the fog of spiritual battle, tests and trials down the road that God deems necessary because he wants your faith to be acclaimed, commended, rewarded and approved in the apocalypse of his son Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.16 then through 20 in context we'll read about Jesus our forerunner. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves. They say, they used to say at least before sitting down as a witness in a judicial court so help me God. Men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves. And for them the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly, that means more overflowingly, literally, to the heirs of the promise, he mediated to guarantee the promise with an oath so that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie. That means in both of these immutable things, God demonstrates clearly his inability to lie, his absolute veracity. We who have fled for refuge, and the idea of fleeing for refuge here in this sense is fleeing from one temple that's doomed to destruction to another temple in which there is eternal salvation, that temple being Jesus himself. You won't, you won't find some of these interjections I'm making today in the notes, so I, I always say let's complement the message, spoken message by the written message because there's things in the, the written form that aren't in the verbal form and there are things that I say in the verbal message that aren't in the written message sometimes. So again, so that by two immutable things, in both of which God demonstrates he's not able to lie, he demonstrates his absolute veracity, we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have. Please notice the triple reference to hope, either by a direct reference to it or by a referent in the Greek text. So that by two immutable things, in both of which God is able, demonstrates his absolute veracity, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the second curtain 
where a forerunner has already entered for us, hyphen, Jesus, hyphen, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He goes all the way back, the writer does, to pick up what's written in 510. And also, something I missed, but something that Gareth Lee Cockerell in his commentary picked up all the way back to 5.1 as well as 5.10. Jesus stands alone in this verse as he stood alone on the Mount of Transfiguration when God the Father announced this is my beloved son. He had stood with Moses and Elijah. They were speaking of his exodus and then all of a sudden they saw Jesus alone. Again, as Jesus stood alone on the Mount of Transfiguration when God the Father announced, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Jesus stands alone in Hebrews 6.20 in the very text of the verse. The Father who said about his Son, this is my beloved Son, has also said to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's a royal acclamation. Moreover, to Jesus, God's son, God the Father said, You are a priest like Melchizedek forever. Notice how I arranged it that time. You are a priest like Melchizedek forever. And that I did that on purpose to indicate that Melchizedek was not a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. He's like Melchizedek, but Melchizedek wasn't a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. So when God said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, in Psalm 2.7, quoted also in Hebrews 1.5, he was declaring Jesus to be a king, for this is the formal acclamation of a king. When God the Father spoke the oath-fortified oath oracle to Jesus, Recorded in Psalm 110.4, God was declaring Jesus to be a priest. Put them both together, you have a king and a priest like Melchizedek was. He was king of Salem and king of righteousness and priest to the most high God, El Elyon. I'm anticipating, however, Hebrews 7. Jesus is like Melchizedek inasmuch as Melchizedek also stood alone and apart from a succession of priests. I will say that again. Jesus is like Melchizedek inasmuch as Melchizedek also stood alone and apart from a succession of priests. He also stands alone in his appearance in Scripture, Melchizedek does, except for Psalm 110. For he only appears in Genesis 14, 17 to 20, after a military victory was wrought by Abraham and 318 cowboy commandos, as I call them. Now, long before the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a priest who was also a king, someone greater than Abraham, someone whom God made a prefiguration before the Mount of Transfiguration 
God presented a prefiguration of his son who was to be a priest and a king. Melchizedek, I'll say it again, is not a priest forever, though forever there is a record of him having been a priest, that forever record being God's word, which is forever settled in heaven. Melchizedek exists as a type of the Son of God. Jesus is a priest forever, or as Hebrews 5.10 and 6.20 put it, an arch-priest forever. Because Jesus performed the task that only an arch-priest could perform behind the second curtain of the Holy of Holies. What the Levitical arch-priest did once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Jesus did once and for all and forever. What the Levitical archpriest did once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for Israel, Jesus did once and for all and forever for all of humanity. Moreover, I would suggest that Origen, one of my favorite patristic theologians, well, there's kind of a tight race between Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A. I'll refer to him today, too. So I would suggest that Origen was correct to hold that, quote, Christ's interceding prayer has a universal effectiveness. We can see how his death had a universal effectiveness and his resurrection, his burial, for that matter, too, and his ascension. But Origen is the first person I've seen to hold that, quote, Christ's interceding prayer has a universal effectiveness. Ramelli spoke of this in her contribution to the book Cloud of Witnesses, citing Origen in a writing of his. Origen wrote several things. One of the things he wrote is Contra Celsus. Contra Celsus. Celsus was a pagan philosopher. He was brilliant. And he wrote a work himself called Logos Alethes, or the True Word, where he attacked viciously and vehemently attacked Christianity. And so later, in around 248 A.D., Origen wrote a reply to Celsus called Contra Celsus or Contra Celsum, which we would translate as against Celsus. Another one of those against books is Irenaeus, who wrote a book called Against Heresy. So in Origen's book or writing, I don't know if you'd call it a book, Contra Celsum 349 and 428 and Against Celsus, Origen presents Jesus as a propitiatory offer, a hilasmos in the Greek, I-H-I-L-A-S-M-O-S, hilasmos. Again, in his reply to Celsus, Origen presents Jesus as a propitiatory offer, a hilasmos, as he is in Hebrews, on behalf of all before the Father, 
for the remission of sins of the sins of the entire world. And that again is Ramelli, quoting Ramelli, whose take on Celsus against Celsus reads that way, where he, she says, quote, where he presents Jesus as a propitiatory offer, a halasmos, as he is in Hebrews, on behalf of all before the Father for the remission of the sins of the entire world. Now we may compare this word halasmos, a very excellent word, as used in the scripture and in origin. We can compare that with another word that's sort of like that, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, hilasterion. And that word is found in Romans 3.25. In Hebrews 9.5, we also have hilasterion, and it's translated as mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the prime piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies behind the second curtain in the second room in Hebrews 9.3 in the earthly man-made tent. So we know that there's something that corresponds to that mercy seat in the heavenly Holy of Holies. That mercy seat is Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one who is the mercy seat for our sins but not for our sins only, for the sins of the whole world, in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So we have Hilasmos, we have Hilasterion. The reason for this is that Jesus is the righteous one, and as such, he is the propitiation. We could also translate that Hilasmos as expiation, the putting away of sins not only for the sins of so-called believers, but for the sins of the whole world. Again, I can't emphasize that enough in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So as such, it is only reasonable that Jesus Christ intercedes and advocates for all of humankind. And we'll present a couple more reasons for this a little further on down the road. So let me say it again. We can't escape from hope. Elpis in Hebrews. Elpis. Elvis may be dead. Elpis is still alive. Thank you very much. So, we can't escape from hope in Hebrews. But we have fled for refuge to Jesus. Now, what, this, what the readers have fled from, the PT doesn't say. He doesn't really have to say. You can infer it. You can imply it. But he doesn't say. As we've said before, however, Second Peter offers the answer. The corruption that is in the world through lust. That's what they fled from. That's what we have fled from. We're fugitives. That corruption is what some of the old-time theologians called concupiscence. You'll see it in the notes. I'm not going to write it up here. But concupiscence is a strong desire and inclination to sin. It's irrational. And when we have, when concupiscence raises its ugly head, we know full well that if we do the course of action we're contemplating in our mind, that it's wrong, that it's going to have 
consequences, that it's going to come back to bite us, that it's going to reap something it's gonna, that we've sown, and it's going to be miserable, but we still have that inclination. Those that belong to Christ, however, crucify that inclination with its passions and lusts, as we'll see. Or we don't, I don't know if we'll see it again, but it's in Galatians 5.24. So we have fled, escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. That corruption, again, is what some of the old-time theologians called concupiscence and what we would define as a strong desire and inclination to sin. I would even call it a narcissistic commitment to self-destructive passions and cravings. How's that for a definition? My definition of concupiscence. A narcissistic commitment to self-destructive passions and cravings. But thank God for this. Those who belong to Christ, that is, we who have fled to Jesus for refuge, are those who, quote, crucify the flesh with its passions and cravings. In Galatians 5.24. Now, the first century readers had also fled for refuge to Jesus, God's true temple. And that's something that isn't quite put forward here, but I think we can infer it. He's speaking about fleeing for refuge from one temple to another. There's a temple they're fleeing where Levitical priests still perform the rituals. It's a temple that's going to endure the fiery indignation of God's judgment in A.D. 70. They have fled from that temple, and they've taken refuge in another temple, and the temple to which they have taken, in which they've taken refuge is Jesus himself. Well, let me illustrate this. In John 2, 19 to 21, you can read it for yourself. In fact, I recommend you read John 2, 19 to 21, where Jesus refers to his own bodily humanity, his own body as a temple. So the first century readers had actually fled for refuge to Jesus, God's true temple, John 2, 19 to 21, from the fiery judgment that threatened to engulf the Jerusalem temple, and the abrogated system of animal sacrifices and Levitical priests and archpriests. The temple was rightly understood, and I'm speaking in general, the temple, whether it was the Jerusalem temple or the ark, the temple in the desert or Solomon's temple or the Herod's temple, the temple was rightly understood by the Jews, and Josephus makes much of this, to be a microcosm of the universe. Remember that word, microcosm. That Jesus referred to his own body, his own human body, as, the, as a temple. To nao to somatas autu, in John 2.21, is significant from the standpoint of the man Christ Jesus himself as a microcosm of the universe. The temple, a microcosm of the universe. Jesus as temple, microcosm of the universe. Jesus as the man, Christ Jesus, a microcosm of the universe. And so, that his old Jerusalem opponents 
would destroy this temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll rise it up again. That his old Jerusalem opponents would destroy this temple and that Jesus would raise it up again in three days, John 2.19, is obviously significant. It's momentous because it discloses that the new universe, listen carefully, please. It discloses that the new universe will come into being through crucifixion, death, and resurrection. It would be a universal new creation via or through the process of what I call, in my own definition, instaration. Instaration. See, that's the old one being crossed out. Instaration. Root word, star, or S-T-A-U-R, where we get the Greek word, stauros, cross. All right? That's what the restoration of all things will be. It will be an instauration, a transformation through crucifixion with Christ, burial with Christ, resurrection with Christ, ascension and exaltation and glorification with Jesus. The scriptural line of reasoning that I'm giving you now aligns with Gregory of Nyssa. That's Gregory of NYSSA. Look him up. Google him sometimes and see if you can find some of his writings and read them. Gregory of Nyssa's developed doctrine in his treatise on 1 Corinthians 15.28 his treatise on 1 Corinthians 15.28. 1 Corinthians 15.28 is a very important verse to me, and I see it as a very important and central and significant verse to almost all the patristic theologians. 1 Corinthians 15.58 is a verse on which Gregory of Nyssa did a treatise in Latin. It's called In Illud Tunc et Ipsi Filius which means then the son himself will be subjected, which is kind of a take right out of 1 Corinthians 15.28. In this treatise, he quote, and I'm quoting again Ramelli in Cloud of Witnesses, page 218 here. In it, he, Gregory, affirmed that Christ's body is the whole of humanity and it will be handed to the Father in the end according to 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. Then the Son himself will be subjected. And that's what that means in my mispronunciation of the Latin. In illud tunc et ipsi filius. Then the Son himself will be subjected. Gregory also interpreted this submission as salvation. We saw that Origen did that too. Gregory interpreted this submission as salvation. So when Jesus submits himself to the Father, in him is the whole universe, the whole creation, all of humanity, in him, the temple. When he submits to the Father, what's he doing? Submitting all of the creation that God has committed to him to the Father. And therefore, that submission is the salvation of all of creation and all of humanity.
That's the reasoning, and it's a good reasoning. And this accords with Gregory's interpretation that this submission is the salvation of all of humanity. Again, this accords with the idea that the incarnation was also one of the necessary elements of the saving work of Christ. And the incarnation was the assumption. And by assumption, I don't mean presumption. I mean the assumption meaning the taking on of or the being clothed with all of humanity. When Jesus became flesh, he became a, the flesh of humanity, all of humanity. It is my contention that the incarnation was more than just the taking on of all of humanity, however. It was the taking on of all material reality. That's why the Bible says the eternal word became sarks, flesh. So intake, and that's what we, if you want to refer back to the two maddening passages on the microcosm in our last two increments, you may do so in the light of this new revelation or insight. So the universe of proportionate being, all of it, will experience the life of God proportionately, proportionate to its own existence. In other words, Angels will experience the eternal life of God in their proportional way. Humans will experience the eternal life of God proportionate to being human. Animals will experience in the eternizing life of God proportionate to their nature as animals, etc., etc., etc. Gregory and others in the patristic tradition considered submission not to be forced but voluntary. They are also correct in that notion, especially if you look carefully at Isaiah 45:23. Gregory and others in this patristic tradition, again, I'm quoting, and not quoting, but repeating, they considered submission not to be forced, but voluntary. Moreover, they considered that, the, that that submission itself was salvation. Even more importantly, they considered that when Jesus, the Son, submits himself to the Father, that he does so for all of humanity and all of creation. That, in essence, is the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15, 28, a verse that was rightly important to the patristic theologians, especially Gregory of Nyssa, and to many modern theologians and some pastor teachers, including moi, yours truly. Now, I caught this again, it seems like by chance, but of course it's not by chance, but I caught this verse, the Septuagint of Psalm 61, which is the English Psalm 62. And this Psalm is one of the 56 Psalms that we've looked at before that begin with the phrase, ace, Ta telos. This word, incidentally, is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. In the end, when Jesus submits himself to the Father, and in doing so, submits all of the saved creation to the Father, etc. Es ta telos. Which means regarding completion, 
or for the end it could be. This psalm, again, an Aistotelos psalm, English is 62, one, offers a wonderful pairing of subjection and salvation. We see them both in this verse. Again, this is in the Greek text of Psalm 61, 2. In the English text, it would be 62, 1. I know it's confusing, but it says this. Shall not my soul be subjected to God? Question mark. For from him is my salvation. Please notice submission and salvation. They're together as salvation. Submission being salvation. They are coupled and paired there. And so I submit to you that perhaps Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and others were correct to assume that the submission where every knee bows, every tongue acknowledges Jesus to be Yahweh or Yahweh to be Jesus is voluntary submission and it indicates the salvation of the owners of every knee and every tongue. In this verse of psalm of a, of a psalm regarding completion, the inspired psalm composer conjoined the ideas of a future eschatological submission, and I'll have the Greek word for you in the print hupotasso, a verb deployed also in the future passive in 1 Corinthians three times. 1 Corinthians 15:28 contains that verb hupotasso, meaning to submit or submission in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, as well as two other times. It, it's deployed exactly like that in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, as well as two other times that straddle it, once in the aorist passive and another in the aorist active in the same verse. And then salvation, soterion. So submission future passive of hupotasso and salvation, the noun soterion, which we're familiar with, are paired in Psalm 61.2 of the Septuagint, which is English 62.1, a little different translation. The first recipients of Hebrews, then, are part of the harvest of wheat. If we want to bring in another parable here, they're part of the harvest of wheat that the angels, and angels there should be understood as evangels or evangelists human messengers like the apostles and those who heard them had gathered into barns as opposed to the false wheat that was engineered by an enemy and sown among the wheat that parable is found in 1324 to 30 of Matthew it's explained in 1336 to 43 this speaks of the sorting out of true from inauthentic Israel in the period of AD 30 to 70. Again, so I will say this again because it's a new thought. The first recipients of Hebrews are part of the harvest of the wheat that the angels or evangelists like the apostles and those who heard them had gathered into barns in Jesus' parable rather than the false wheat that was engineered by an enemy and sown among the wheat. That which the enemy had planted was sorted out finally from the real wheat and the false was thrown into a furnace to burn. This refers to the temple being destroyed in A.D. 70, not to hell, of course, to any sane, non-narcissistic listener. So in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and 36 to 43, Jesus' parable 
it should go without saying by now that this parable is not an argument for the existence of a post-mortem place of torture called hell. If it were, then God would be far worse than Hitler and Stalin and other dictators, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, and others, some of whom are still admired by idiots. God himself mediated to guarantee the promised Abraham, therefore, with an oath, and I'm closing now, in giving the promised Abraham, and he fortified his formal acclamation of Jesus as archpriest forever with an oath, so that, for the reason that we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure. An anchor keeps the soul from drifting. This anchor also keeps us from joining the teeming mass of drifters in our generation. And it will keep you, the following generations, from joining that teeming mass of drifters. Hebrews 6.18 again. Here it is again. Here it is again. We're reading Hebrews here. We're doing a reading of it over and over again. So that by two immutable things, in both of which God demonstrates his absolute veracity, we who have fled for refuge have would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the second curtain where a forerunner has already entered. When Jesus, God's son, entered into the world, he entered into future world. He entered into the region beyond the veil. Hebrews 1, 5, and 6 correlates here. Having been brought up from the dead by the God of peace in Hebrews 13, 20. That's a dramatic recognition of the efficacy and acceptability of the blood of the everlasting covenant. So let me continue the verse again. Verse 20 says this, where a forerunner has already entered for us. Jesus having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Father, for this message. In Jesus' name, amen.